The USTA again has reinstated its plans to go ahead with the US Open, confirming last night that they only need New York government approval to hold the Grand Slam tournament. But whether it will go ahead and what players will participate, we don't know. It's all up in the air at the moment. We're going to discuss all that and more on Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo, and on the other line with me is Joel Frucci. Joel, apart from all that and all the news nuggets that have come out during the week, we have got a humongous behemoth of a show today. And I, I, I'm, I'm so excited to bring this to all the listeners. How are you? I'm going all right, Bell. And uh, yes, you're right. It's a very, very, very big guest. And uh, I guess if you don't mind me introducing him, he's none other than the coach of the world number two, Simona Hull, Darren Cahill. So uh, I think, um, I think I'm, I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to say he's the biggest name that we've ever had. Uh, on our show. We have had some big names before, like uh, Todd Woodbridge, um, etc. But um, I'm going to go with Darren as, uh, as the biggest we've had. I think uh, he's... Um, and, and just listening to him speak, oh man, a wealth of knowledge, absolute wealth of knowledge. Oh, the, the amount of time he gave us as well was unbelievable. You could listen to him speak about tennis all day and he's just... He's such a wonderful tennis mind. He's so great for our sport. The passion that he speaks about this sport with and um, and how he goes about his business and his his learnings on coaching and his sort of his philosophy on coaching is unbelievable and how he goes about um, what he does is is purely, purely phenomenal. So um, yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to have a chat with him last week and um, we can't wait to bring you that chat and show Everybody or establish to everybody why, if, if they haven't heard already, why he's the number one tennis mind in the world. But Joel, the elephant in the room, the US Open overnight has confirmed... Big elephant. It is, it is a big elephant. It's very big. And well, Mark, what did Mark say? Don't think about a pink elephant. It's a big pink elephant. Yeah. A big pink <laughs> elephant in the room. Um, so yeah, they've confirmed that they want the tournament to go ahead and they, they're planning to run it as, as full steam ahead. Organisation is going ahead. No crowds of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, but um, they're just waiting on the New York government approval for the event to go ahead. So that's the big one. I'm I'm still in the stage of what the hell are they thinking? Why is this going ahead? Because Ash Barty's already reserved her cons- is already reserved about going to the tournament. Nadal and Djokovic have already said, I don't think that we should go. And Roger Federer has pulled out because he's had surgery over the last week, which we'll get to later, tier tier. Um, cause I'm very upset about it, but, um, yeah, it's, um, it, it's just, it just seems, it seems dumb, this, this whole situation, because the top players have already said that they're concerned about going to the U S open. So why, why are we trying to, to force a tournament out? I, I'm, I'm, and I've come up with this yet over the last week and just said, look, if, if, the ITF, ATP, and WTA have some money left over from everything, and I'm sure that they do have a bit of an influx of cash in the bank. Can they fix up or can they assist the players that need it most with a money with with some sort of a surplus package or some sort of a, like a a package that they could give to players, so a, a lump sum of money that they could give to players, pay them out for the end of the year. And then when 2021 rolls around, go with the full season ahead. Cancel everything in 2020 because it's just causing so much confusion and there's so many different interpretations on what should happen and how it should go ahead. So the US Open wants to go ahead, but the top players are saying that they don't want to go. Simona Halep is another one that's um, that's aired her concerns about heading to New York. 
um, and the fact that players can't travel with big entourages isn't going to help the top players. Maybe that does make the field more even, but it's it's. I, I honestly don't know what to think about it. I'm still reserved at the fact that the tournament shouldn't go ahead. Why should we have to pack our bags here in Australia and head over to New York when there's just no point doing so? If it's They talk about sports with asterisks next to the big tournaments and championships. I don't think that's more on the domestic front. I, I think that tournaments or the uh, leagues like the AFL, NRL, the Premier League and all the soccer leagues they don't have asterisks because they're all domestic competitions. But tennis, if Federer, Nadal, Djokovic don't play the US Open, I'm sorry, there is a massive, massive asterisk next to that tournament. So why why would it why would it go ahead? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the most obvious reason Val is is the dollar really. Yeah. Um, so you know, we've done a bit of reading during the week um, about the the revenues that the USTA. Um, make I think from the US Open and um, I think I was reading that uh, it's something like 80% um, of their yearly revenue comes from the US Open which is obviously a huge portion um, and they get $70 million alone from from broadcasting from from ESPN so that's obviously a lot of money so um, you know I, I think I think the USTA are going to be desperate to to push through the tournament um, simply so that they have a product to broadcast mm. Um but yeah, I mean you're right. Like um, all the all the health, health precautions that have been put forward, I mean they certainly don't um, don't favour uh, a lot of players. A lot of players will choose not to go. Um, and I mean if the tournament does go ahead, then um, we, we have read that potentially um, the, the the draw could be reduced to 96 players, which certainly doesn't help the players that, that need it most that actually need to get out there and uh, and compete. And um, you know it it's interesting because. The, 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 the tournament, if it goes ahead, will be compromised yeah. and it will have an asterisk for sure because, you know, players like, as you said, Novak, Harlep, uh, Barty, Nadal might not be there. Um, you know, but uh, at, at the same time, down the bottom, um, a lot of those players that um, that actually need to make the money mm. um, <laughs> can't necessarily uh, can't necessarily compete because they're, they're being... Um, they're being frozen out, so to speak. So, um, look, it's, it's an interesting one. We'll, we'll probably still watch it, but... Um, you know, it, it really, it really is one that just screams self-interest, yeah. um, and you know, I, I think that's really the only motivation behind it. Yeah, Adam Peacock penned uh, penned a brilliant article for Fox Sports saying that the the governing bodies of tennis want the sport to succeed if they do well out of it, and this is a prime example of that because. Yes, the players that have got frozen out, sort of like a Chris O'Connell, is a perfect example played so much tennis in 2019 to get his ranking back to 116 where he's fighting to get into Grand Slams and he's so close to that top 100 mark. But he's just essentially just been frozen in 2020 where he can't make where he can't make up the rankings. He can't move himself up. Where does he go from here? That's why I'm saying, do the ITF, the ATP and the um, WTA get together, give players a lump sum of money so that they've got something to go to when 2021 rolls around, they can get part-time jobs in the meantime if there are things available. Do some waitressing, do some waitering, you know, get whatever job you can. Then when 2021 rolls around, you're ready to go, keep training, and that's where you start. Not A 96-man or woman draw for a Grand Slam, it's not a Grand Slam. That is not a Grand Slam. You cannot call it yeah, that. Yeah. And that's what, I've I read it more about the French Open. They want to reduce it to that. 
that does that mean the top, the thirty two seeds get a buy like Indian Wells and Miami? That is not a Grand Slam draw. That is disgusting that they're even considering that. So you cannot call it a Grand Slam. If anybody wins it, it's an asterisk. And I'm sorry, I don't, I, I don't think that if, if they're going with the 96-man draw for either of the tournaments, it just shouldn't go ahead. We've been saying it all year. Yeah. And nobody And there's more people than not saying that the tour, it's, it's kind of ridiculous that we're even considering it. But it's good yeah, that they want no, to. I'm, but... Yeah, and I think this is, I think this again is, is the reason why um, the, the federations are so desperate for their events uh, to go ahead because if they don't get things like broadcasting revenue and if they, if they can't, um, I guess, uh, bring, in, bring in the money that is contractually obliged by, by sponsors, um, it's almost going to be a case of how do they recoup that money because mm-hmm. it really is a domino effect that, that the pandemic is, is yeah. having on, on everyone really because those sponsors are going to inevitably uh, lose revenue. Yeah. Um, and if they lose revenue, then um, the result of that is that the, the, the federations and then, and then the players are going to, are going to lose money themselves. So um, it, it really is just, just a vicious cycle. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately, um, I don't really think there is um, a completely fair way out of it, Bell, because... No. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, if, if the events do go ahead, um, you know, I can see why the federations would want them to go ahead because they need to make that money. But at the same time, um, and, and we addressed this with, with Darren um, as a bit of a spoiler, um, we asked him, um, and we won't reveal the answer, but we did ask him, how can we actually make these events fair if they go ahead for the players? How can, um, how if, if players choose not to go, if they are frozen out, how can points be evenly distributed? How can prize money be evenly distributed without... Um, disadvantaging those players that, for whatever reason, can't go, whether it's travel restrictions or if they simply just don't want to go for safety uh, reasons that, that they dictate, um, it's it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting one. And um, you know, we could talk for hours and hours about it, but uh, you know, the, uh, unfortunately, there really is probably no clear answer, and it's going to take a lot of minds to come together to actually figure something out that that works for for everyone, both um, men and women, and top. Um, you know, top level and uh, also players that are that are further down that, as we keep saying, need the money more than anyone else right now. 100% agree. And you know who does deserve an award throughout this whole period are the All England Lawn Tennis Club uh, brokers and the Tennis Australia brokers because they organise yeah. pandemic insurance. And you know what? That is an absolutely genius masterstroke there from those, uh, from those two organisations to actually organise it and ensure that they're actually looked after in positions like this. The um, FFT and the USTA, I think, would be kicking themselves, and I reckon they'll be um, they'll be trying to organise something like this in the future. But um, moving on, Joel, the Roger Federer has announced that he's not going to partake in any type of tennis in 2020, much like his 2016 season. He said he's going to have another arthroscopic surgery after um, medical advice going to the doctors on his right knee, so... He's out for the rest of the year if tennis does come back, so that's disappointing. Hopefully, uh, for Federer's sake, tennis doesn't come back and he can come back and have a year off and refresh the body. We all know what happened in 2017, so, oh boy, we could be in for a big year in 2021. So, disappointing for Roger Federer fans, myself included, but, um, yeah, hopefully all the best for the Swiss maestro as well. But um, another bit of tennis that was going on during the week was the Adria Tour, which Dominic Team won in Belgrade um, over Filip Kranjevic in the final. It was a Novak Djokovic organised event. But Joel, did you notice anything strange about this tournament? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, first, 
first thing I'll say, Val, it was is it's it was great to actually have you know some tennis back, um, some some high level tennis, uh, the Adria Tour as well as the uh, Ultimate Tennis Showdown, which is um which is still going, and we saw some some brilliant shot making, so that was great. But um, yeah, look, you're right. I mean, um, it was it was pretty hard not to be uh, or, or for your eye not to be caught by the um the crowds um at the event and not least the crowds but also the the lack of regard for social distancing now i know that um uh from what i've seen things are operating a little bit differently um in serbia um and that's their own choice so i suppose the event organizers can really sort of only operate in the parameters that they've been given by the the local government but um you know it, it does really make you wonder and we were just talking about the us open and how um a whole lot of, high, um, I guess, high-end players, if we want to call them that, including Novak, um, have have put forward their doubts about going to this event. It kind of makes you wonder and, and scratch your head. Well, so where are where are we sitting? If um, if you're happy to have, you know, an event in Europe and, and play set events, and then immerse yourself in in, a, in an event where there are crowds, there are fans, um, you know, ball people. Um, you know, hugs, high fives, whatever it is, all the things that we've been told not to do. Mm. Um, it really does make you sort of scratch your head and wonder, well, sort of where, where are we going with this? Because, yeah. um, you know, it, it was great to have that event back and not exactly sure what, what the regulations are in Serbia at the moment, but from what I understand, they are a hell of a lot looser than, um, uh, you know, a lot of other parts of the world like we're used to, certainly in Australia and um, I think what we're seeing in the States and in, in the UK and, and those kind of places as well, but um, yeah, look, it was it was really really strange, and um, certainly a lot of uh, a lot of tennis journalists uh, online made their thoughts known. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you really sort of can't help but but agree. It was um, it was a pretty it was a pretty strange uh, mm. scene in the context of what we've become used to. Oh, hundred percent. And Nick McCarble, um, the American tennis broadcaster, um, tweeted it out perfectly. I think the images coming from the Adria Cup are shocking. Um, players are calling for safety measures at the US Open and saying they might not play, but are okay with full stadiums, a packed closed quarters, kids' day, hugs, mic sharing, selfies, and an exhibition. Actually, can't believe what I'm seeing. I agree wholeheartedly. It's it's pathetic because Novak Djokovic is the one that chaired this event. And he's saying that he's reserved about going to the U.S. Open for safety measures. Are you joking? You see, yeah. he has had. Uh, he's got to resign as the players' president. He has to because he's been horrible. Water drinking, uh, drinking water. Um, you know, his wife saying that Corona is a myth, and then this stuff, and then not attending a U.S. Open phone call, a Zoom call, um, during the week to discuss whether the tournament should go ahead. He's the player's chair. He's the one that has put himself in a position where players are relying on him to get the best for them, for themselves and the tours. And he's not actively participating in these discussions. I'm sorry. That whether you like it or not, that's your duty. And to be doing this and maybe, maybe those in Eastern Europe, maybe the restriction should be, should be higher because what's happened in Australia, we're already getting back to live sport. The UK is getting back to live sport. America's still in a pretty crappy position, but yeah. with higher restrictions become higher rewards. And look, we're already starting to move out of it here in Melbourne. And people that participated in some of these Adria Cup things, there was a, a, a Serbian basketballer that has tested positive for COVID. She was, in a, she was with Novak Djokovic during the week. So 
this it's so dangerous what they've done here and they've had a packed stadium even isn't aren't the European Football League so the Premier League Bundesliga La Liga Serie A they're not being played in front of crowds are they Joel no all behind closed doors and um, the the uh, for context like the regulations in those leagues are pretty strict so the players on the bench have to have to be distanced they're they're not even sitting on the bench proper for that matter they're sitting uh, in the stands they're wearing face masks um, there's no uh, there's no walkouts before the game there's no handshakes um, celebrations are done differently um, it's it's extreme um, so when you I guess when you juxtapose the two it's uh, it's it's quite the contrast then why the hell are we allowing crowds into this tournament even the ultimate tennis showdown no crowds why were there crowds and a full pack stadium at the Adria Cup what was Djokovic thinking mm. like if you're doing yeah, it from- sure. I mean yeah all, all I can really say is that um, he, he must surely have been operating within within the guidelines put forward by by the Serbian government now um, I, I think it's we should note as well that um, the 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 profits that were made from this event are going to um, for memory some charities that, that are relevant to, to the, the pandemic. But having said that, it kind of, you think about it and it's kind of like, well, does it, does it kind of defeat the purpose a bit? Because yes. um, if there's this event that's that's almost bringing about a second wave, so to speak, but then you've got money going to charities um, that, that deal with it, it's kind of like, well, where are we sort of sitting with this? We're kind of just balancing out the two. So it's like, all right, we're going to go and create a second wave, but all right, here's some money to go and, get prepared for it it's kind of it's, it's like a, confusing. It, really, it's just we're going yeah, around in circles yeah i don't really get it and even 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 any um you know any amount of money that, that goes to to any kind of charity really is unfortunately is probably not going to be able to prevent another outbreak um i mean we've seen this thing this thing you know this thing jumps so quickly um yeah. so Anyway, I think we've said it. It's just really confusing, yeah. goal. I just don't understand. Yeah, and before anyway. we do move on to Darren, the one point which um, you you um, alerted me to this morning was uh, world number 225, Noah Rubin, about Novak Djokovic. This is from the Behind the Racket podcast. If you want to look out for yourself, look out for yourself. This sport was built for that. But then don't put yourself in a situation where others rely on you. If I can't get in touch with you, if you aren't helping me out, if you can't get on an effing Zoom call, what is the point of all of this? And I don't think anybody could have put it better himself. Like, Novak Djokovic is the president of the ATP Players Council. If he can't get on a Zoom call about the US Open, and Danielle Collins during the week as well, coming out and saying that Novak Djokovic is so, you know, he doesn't rely on, you know, tournaments or tennis to make money anymore. He's got endorsements. He's made enough. He's set himself up. But for the players that need to work, and need the money. He's saying that the tournament shouldn't go ahead. He's trying to look at, he says that he's trying to look out for the players, but he's not with the entourages and everything. If you were really trying to look out for the players, you would head to America or you would say, all right, let's try and organize something that the ATP, WTA and ITF can do to help players in a monetary situation instead of the players doing it ourselves. Because the onus isn't on the players. It's on the organizations that he's handling it all wrong. And to not get on that Zoom call, Noah Rubin is 100% right. If I was a tennis player right now, I would be livid and I'd be calling for his resignation. I would be. I would yeah, be well, absolutely furious, Joel. 
Yeah, well, I think last point before we do get to Darren. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it certainly raises. I think what what Noah said really raises an interesting point. I think. Um, yeah, I think I think given what we've seen, um, I think you could argue, and I certainly I certainly think this should be the case that the head of the players' council, certainly on on the uh, on behalf of the men, um, I think it needs to be. It needs to be a lower ranked player. I don't. I don't think a higher ranked player could could fill that role and empathise with the lower ranked players. I don't think. I don't. Don't even think Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal or Dominic Team or Alex Barrow, Stan Wawrinka, whoever it is. I don't think any of those guys could fill those shoes properly because they wouldn't necessarily. I, I don't think they would understand the hardships um, of the lower ranked players. Some might. A guy like Dominic Team might. Alex Barrow might. Um, but I don't think the other guys would. I think it needs to it needs to come from from the lower tiers, um, the lower rankings, uh, position like that. And even we see on the women's side, someone like Alexandra Krunic um, has been quite vocal for for the women, and, and you know she she um, she hasn't had a you know a really high ranking um, for quite a while, if ever. So I think that's kind of the um, and, and there are admittedly admittedly in the WTA there are um, you know there are there are the counselors, there are some high ranked players like Madison Keys who are part of that. Um, I guess that that committee, if you want to call it that, but um, you know, I think I think lower ranked players on the men's side need to have more voice in a position like that. I actually I do agree with you there, and I re I, I think that that would be I think that would be really advantageous to the tour. Um, but Roger and Rafa have been on the president and the players council before, and a lot more people were um, were praising them over what Djokovic has done. Djokovic has not handled this situation well at all. And I agree with you. I think the president should come probably probably maybe a outside the top 50. And maybe a John Millman would be someone that would be good to have on that players' council yeah. because he's someone that's working for the players and he's working to try and get the tours evenly balanced. So it's a bit of a watch this space. And I think that's something that we can... Um, hopefully chat with someone in a little bit more depth about maybe someone that's previously been on the council and the, the intricacies of the meetings and what happens in those four walls. But Joel, should we move on to our very special guest? Sounds good, Val. Let's get to Darren. Well, Joel, our first guest for the show this afternoon is, well, he's one of the coaches of our generation. He's guided so many wonderful players to world number one in Leighton Hewitt, Andre Agassi, Hewitt the youngest, Andre the oldest for a time. And uh, one, the one and only Simona Halep, who is the reigning Wimbledon champion. I speak none other than uh, Darren Cahill, who joins us on the line uh, right now. Darren, thank you so much for joining us. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Um, you're honestly one of the big, best tennis minds in the world. And yeah, to have you on our humble little podcast is a pleasure. So thank you so much for joining us. How are you going? Good morning, boys. A little bit of a worry for me that I'm talking to a Richmond supporter and a Bombers supporter. But come on, let's fire up. Season has started. Let's get it going. Exactly. And uh, well, first things first. How how are you going with um with the COVID pandemic? And um, has it been kind of nice to be home for more of an extended period of time, considering um you were you were home for most of two thousand and nineteen, and then a little bit more time off, I guess, with um with the lockdown. So how's everything been going, and what have you been up to? It's been nice for me. Uh, I think you'd probably have to ask my wife whether it's been nice having me around more than normal, but. It has been good to, to hang with the kids back here and hang with the family. And uh, I think you take every bad situation uh, and try to turn it into a good one. So for me, it's been nice to spend more time back here in Adelaide, but certainly missing tennis and 
our sport's one of the more difficult ones because we kind of need all the international borders to open up before our sport can really get going. And as you've probably heard in the last uh, few weeks, the US Open's hoping to get going the first two weeks of September, but there's a lot of difficulties in trying to pull that together. But we need it because tennis is a, an unusual sport that we rely on competing and prize money to survive. It's not so much for the top 20 players or top 30 players, but really for everyone below that. And no one's been able to make a check for the last three or four months, and that'll continue until t- tournaments start going again. So for players ranked between 100 and 500, they are desperate for the tours to start up again so they can get back to work. And that actually applies not just for the players, but also all the coaches and the physios and the trainers and the hitting partners and even the staff working at all the tournaments. Everything's come to a complete halt for us. So we need the game to get going. Yeah, and uh, you're exactly right. And before we do get into that, I want to ask, how have you been keeping in touch with uh, with Simona and um, what have you been speaking to her about and um, how often do you speak to her? Every day. Uh, she's back into training now. So once the restrictions came down in Romania, she was able to get back onto the court and start to do her training in the gym. I think the restrictions are still in the gym. You can't go into a normal gym over there to train, but she's one of the fortunate ones where she's got a pretty good setup in a home place that she can get it done with her trainer. So every day we still work through what she's doing on the court and what she's doing in the gym and getting all the testing done to make sure she's on track. And I've also got a PlaySite Go system, which is a portable PlaySite system, which they use in a lot of tennis courts these days where I can actually log on. They just put it at the back of the court, hanging onto the wire fence, and I can log on every day and actually watch her practice live. And so if I need to speak to her, I just give her a call when she goes and sits down at the change events. We talk about the practice. And she goes back out there with the coach that's looking after her across in Romania, Artie, and he's doing an incredible job with her. And one of the big problems with this is that tennis players are just not used to not having a tournament to look forward to every week. So our motivation is always inspired from, okay, we've got Wimbledon coming up in three weeks or the US Open's coming up and you've got all these particular tournaments throughout the course of the year. So we have something to train for. And for the last three or four months, there'd been nothing on the horizon that players can get inspired to train for. So that's been the most difficult thing is you're going onto the court, you're doing all this work, you're working really hard, you're playing well, and then you're going, well, what for? (laughs) There's no tournament around the corner. So we've had to adapt this Olympic mentality where like the swimmers and the track athletes and the cyclists, you know, they, they gear up their training for one huge event every four years. So it just goes to show how strong mentally they are to go and do the work day in, day out and know that there's not a big event just around the corner. So that's kind of the mentality I've been trying to instill in Simona through this period is try to adapt your mentality more like an Olympic athlete. Know that there's no big tournaments coming up, but still find that inspiration to get out there and work hard every day. Sounds like you're uh, adopting a whole lot of sort of new and evolutionary techniques, Darren. I guess how sort of challenging and unique has it been for yourself as a coach to be in this situation and, and sort of have to adapt your your uh, your methods and your routines to, to suit this um, unprecedented time that we've found ourselves in? Yeah, look, it might even be just once-in-a-lifetime experience for everybody what we're going through. Hopefully it is, and hopefully we don't have to go through this again. But that kind of summarises coaching to a large extent is that you have to adapt you have to get better you have to evolve you have to be able to listen to 
your player. You can't coach the player through your eyes. You've got to coach through their eyes. That's very difficult to do if you're a former player coming off the tour because you have preconceived ideas about players' strengths and weaknesses through your eyes and what you've experienced. But that doesn't work to be a good coach in tennis. You've got to take the time to understand your player and why they're making certain choices on the court and coach through their eyes. So I think what you're saying is this is just another chance for us to try to get better, to try to evolve, to do things differently, and to try to handle situations that we're not used to. And this COVID-19, not just for tennis, but for every sport and just every business, everyone around the world, everybody has had to try to adapt and make the most out of a tough situation. And Darren, uh, you spoke off the off the top about um, sort of the how difficult it is for not only the players but coaches, officials, um, physios, and, and etc. But um, you, you've had a couple of efforts to try and uh, raise funds for touring coaches that have been hardest hit by by COVID nineteen. Tell us about that, and tell us about the reasoning behind um, behind why you wanted to get behind such a good cause. Yeah, I think that people have the perception because of what players make, especially the top 10 players in the world, and they make an enormous amount of money. And that's a whole different subject because there's too much money at the top in tennis and it doesn't flow through to the lower ranks. And I think in Aussie rules football, we've got about 800 professional players in Aussie rules football. And and whilst the 800th player is only making minimum salary, there are no work expenses related to that salary. You have life expenses like everybody but there are no work expenses, mm-hmm. whereas tennis is really different. And our work expenses are airfares, hotels, traveling expenses. If you want a coach, you've got to pay for that coach. You have to pay for the accommodation, the, the airfare. Then if you're at a, a hitting partner or whatever it may be, the work expenses are enormous. So to just break even in tennis, you've got to be ranked around 130 to 150 in the world. So that's only 150 players in the entire world that are able to make ends meet in our game, which is crazy, right, considering that you've got 800 AFL football players here in Australia that are doing okay. They can, they can put some money in the bank. So that also applies to coaches as well, and there's this feeling like all the coaches in the world are making tons of money. You see in the NFL, the NBA, and the contracts a lot of the coaches make, they're crazy money, but tennis coaches don't get paid like that, nowhere near the money like that. And I promise you that... of the coaches, it's probably more financial beneficial to them to stay at home, be a local club coach, work hard, be a good club coach. You're probably making more money doing that than you are for 80% of the the coaches that are out there traveling the world with an individual professional player. So it's tough. It's for those coaches. And I'm I'm one of the fortunate ones. I've had a chance to work with three great players and they've all looked after me. So I'm not included in that group. So we're not doing this for us. We're doing this for the 80% of the coaches that are struggling, that are of my age, they have a family, they've got to put their kids through school, they have health insurance, they, they, they rely on the week-to-week check, like everybody in, in the world. It's no different. So I think there's this perception that if you're a travelling tennis coach, you're making a ton of money, but it's just not the case. So we're trying to do things for, for these guys, and male coaches and female coaches that can at least help them through this period because they are really struggling. Yeah, it's it's really difficult, and you, and you mentioned the prize money as well, and the, it's been such a big issue throughout this whole pandemic and lockdown and the Djokovic propo- proposed fund, but people have either agreed or disagreed with that. So who do you think the onus is actually on to increase the prize money for the ITF futures events and for challenges and for qualifiers? Is it is it on 
I don't think it should be on the players. I think it should be on the organisations like the ATP and the and the WTA and the ITF to go through. Who who should the onus be on in your eyes? You should be working for us. You're exactly right. There's no no question. It's got nothing to do with the players. The players' responsibility is to get out there and do the best you can. And we only have a short window as a player, and it's to to make as much money as you can. It's it's our window closes normally when you get to the early 30s, unless you're a guy like Federer, uh, where you can play into your late 30s. But for most of us, there's about a 10, 12 year window, just like footballers and other sports around the world, that you've got a window to make the most of your opportunity. The ATP and the WTA are the ones responsible for making sure that they filter that prize money through to the lower ranks as best they can. And the distribution percentages from the first round through to the winner's check hasn't changed much over the last 30 or 40 years. And back in our day, even pre-my day when they made even less money, it wasn't that big of an issue because the money wasn't as big. But now because the money is so huge, I guess it just shines a light on how big the difference is. So it's up to those tours to make sure they distribute more of that money to the earlier rounds and even to qualifying rounds. But I think the bigger issue also is the Grand Slams have worked really hard to do that and they've actually changed their percentages, putting a lot more money into the first, second and third rounds and even into qualifying. But I think the tours as a whole, with the prize money increases coming from the Grand Slams, I would love to see them go, you know, we're not going to put that into prize money for the next three to five years. Instead, we'll take those increases in prize money. We'll pull this enormous amount of money because the prize money sometimes increases five, ten million million, $10 million a year. Imagine if you take that entire money over the four grand slams and go, we're going to spend this efficiently to put it into the futures and to the challenger events and make sure all those tournaments around the world have a chance to actually make some money. And it's not so much about having more of those events. It's about making sure those events are healthier. And I think there are many ways we can do that. But that's not up to the players. That's up to the people in charge of tennis. And that really is the ATP and the WTA. So I hope this period shines a light on that and they can make some real changes moving forward. Speaking of the Grand Slams, Darren, of course, as you said earlier, um, we've spoken a bit about the US Open already and how uh, we've seen some um, proposed changes to, um, I guess, or proposed regulations that the players have to abide by. And they're very strict, it has to be said. And, um, of course, we're hoping that we can see uh, the French Open um, as well. It it is looking like it'll be a pretty congested uh, calendar um, if those events um, do go ahead. I saw you had a, a chat with uh, with Reuters uh, a couple of days ago, and you said yep. um, those regulations at the US Open probably wouldn't work for for Simona Halep if she was to um, if she was to head over to the states, or even um, you know if she even um, did go over to the states. But um, uh, um, if those events do go ahead, and Val and I have been talking a lot about this, and I think we sound like a bit of a broken record. We seem to be talking about the the Grand Slams and how they're going to work, or, or whether where they're going to fall down. Pretty much every single show in the last couple of months i mean if if they go ahead but a lot of players can't um get over there or if the if the rules don't work for them i mean how can we how can we really ensure fairness across uh the sport to ensure that those players that if the regulations don't work for them um how can we ensure that they um you know don't lose points or you know don't lose prize money or anything like that it's a bit of a a hard one for for me from the outside looking in yeah it's a massive discussion point Joel and you're right it's tough for everybody because I don't think it's up for any particular player to judge another player for 
a decision they make regarding these upcoming tournaments because everybody is different. And I think the one common thing that all the players agree on and hope for is that tennis starts up. And we're all incredibly happy that the US Open is trying its backside off to make the US Open happen. That's a great thing. And I think that it's difficult circumstances coming in a hot spot in New York as it stands right now. It's just difficult to imagine jumping on a plane and going across there with all the restrictions that are in place for many, many different reasons. But one of the great things that we've seen, especially here in Australia over the last couple of months, is how things can change for the good very, very quickly. They can change for the bad as well, and we talk about a lot of the countries with the second wave coming. Hopefully that doesn't happen here or doesn't happen anywhere else. But I think this is a bit of a a wait-and-see period. I know the US Open has to make a decision in the next week or two, otherwise they just can't run the event. I hope they go ahead with it. I think that the fact they're trying their damnness to make this happen is great and all the players support it. But when it comes down to it, about in eight weeks' time, if a player, individual player, says, you know what, this is just not for me. I just don't want to get onto a plane, go across there with one person, be stuck and isolated in a hotel room by myself because tennis is a little bit different to other sports where the other sports are putting themselves in bubbles, but they're with their teammates so they can hang out and train with their teammates, spend time with their teammates. Tennis is not like that. So basically you're self-isolating with one other person in a hotel and you've got to do it for four weeks. So that'll be a choice I think the players will have to make. It's not just the top players that are worried about it. It's a lot of the players are worried about doing it. And I think everybody should speak up and be concerned about it. Hopefully they go ahead with the event. They give the prize money they're planning on giving. They award points to it because the tournament just won't happen if they don't award ranking points. Ranking points to us is like our Bible. Uh, We live and die by the ranking points and to have credibility they have to award ranking points and that's the US Open's choice anyway the WTA or the ATP can't stop them from awarding ranking points and that gives the whole event credibility otherwise it just becomes a a big money exhibition and they would never do that because the TV rights would play a big part in that as well so I hope it goes ahead but I hope everybody has enough patience and common sense to know that when we get to a period in six weeks' time where people have to make a decision as to whether or not they play, uh, they respect everybody's individual choice. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all going to come down to choice at the end of the day. And um, I, th- I think as well, I, I just hope that um, everyone involved with, with the event, not least the players, but also the coaches and the officials, the ball people as well, um, I, I guess I just hope that everyone feels safe in that environment, like they can go to work and, and do their job, Darren, because I, I guess... Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, feeling isolated and all that kind of thing is, is one thing and a lack of preparation. But um, obviously the, the players and, and all the people in their workplace have to have to feel safe, don't they? Yeah, there's a few other considerations that not many people have spoken about as well. And even insurance. So mm-hmm. the players are fine because they have insurance through the two tours. But for the coaches, the international coaches coming into the U.S., We don't have health insurance when we step into the US. We have health insurance in our own countries, but when we go to a place like the US, uh, we don't have it, which is not normally a problem because (laughs) we're a little bit older and we don't have to be healthy like uh, the players. And if we have something wrong with us, if it's a toothache or whatever it might be, we just hang on and wait till we get back to our home country and get it fixed. So it's not normally a problem, but you imagine a coach or a partner of someone going into the US and coming down with COVID-19, having to be hospitalised for a couple of weeks, 
And I don't know if you guys know the hospital system over there, but the medical system is a bit of a disaster in the yep. US. It's incredibly yeah. expensive. And you come out of hospital after two weeks, you have no insurance and you're handed a bill for $250,000. Who's liable for that? So there are a lot of other considerations that have to go into making sure this tournament happens, not just being safe, making sure all the players and the coaches or the physios, whoever you take across to this event, they are protected when they step into to the US. Perfect. And yeah, it's that's that's a big issue, $250,000. That is a lot of money. So that's hopefully... No, I'm just guessing, but the US system's crazy <laughs> yeah. when it comes to metal yeah, expenses. Yeah, so. we're very lucky with what we've got over here. So thank God we do live in Australia. But um, changing tact a little bit, Darren, and moving to your coaching career and your, your work, moving to your current work more so, your work with Simona has been one of the most wonderful tennis stories that we've seen in recent times and how you've guided her through to her maiden Grand Slam title and um, in, in 2018. But it was um, it, there was a couple of heartbreaking losses before that, mainly at um, the 2017 French against Ostapenko, where she was up a set and a break in that grueling final against Wozniacki at the 2018 Australian Open, which I had the pleasure of being at. But what exactly do you say to Simona after those losses, and and how much of a testament to her character is it that she can come back and? finally win that slam after being challenged and, um, and and finally getting there and getting to that number one spot and just overcoming all that adversity. Yeah, it really did show the resilience and strength and character that Simona had to go through a couple of tough losses and, and put it all aside and continue to work hard and keep putting herself into a position to win a major and, and to finally break through in a tough, tough match against Sloan. And Sloan was really outplaying her for a set and a half and Simona found a way. She problem solved. She changed her game a little bit and she found a way to get herself back into that final and finally break through. And you're right that, you know, it's, we talk a lot about the journey and the road that you go down. And sometimes there's a lot of bumps that you hit along the road, but the most beautiful destinations are sometimes the toughest roads to go down. And that is true for Simona's, no question about it. And I think that's kind of why it made it sweeter at the end. And I know the lessons learned from that match she played against Ostapenko, not just from her perspective, but also from mine, because I think following that particular match, I made a few mistakes as a coach, the way I handled that situation, the way I pushed her a little bit too hard. I wasn't empathising with how she was feeling and what she was going through internally. And I was always of the belief that she was so close. We've got to keep working, get back on the horse and keep giving yourself a chance to to win one of these tournaments and you are so close, not just to winning a first ever major, but also to that number one ranking, which she hadn't achieved. So I did a few things wrong through that period, which I learned from. And I think both her as a player and myself as a coach at the end of that year realized that we could both get better. And she certainly took on that challenge and I did as well. And I think that resonated with the way she played in 2018 and that match that you saw against Wozniacki, there was nothing negative to come out of that match. That was an amazing performance throughout the course of that tournament. She saved match points in an early round match against Lauren Davis. Yeah. She saved match points against Angie Kerber in the semis, a remarkable match. The two girls shouldn't have even been playing that final with the roof open. It was crazy temperatures and humidity. And in fact, the next day with the same temperatures, they actually closed the roof for the men's final. But the way those two ladies fought in that final... There was nothing but pride and admiration from our point of view with that tournament and nothing to be learned about except for the fact that you're going to get this done. I actually think she gained a lot of confidence from that particular loss that 
her time will come. And through that, she was the best player of 2018 on the WTA Tour, and it culminated in an unbelievable Ron Garris win. So same as I spoke before about coaches evolving and getting better and learning, it's the same thing for tennis players as well, and she's always taken on that challenge. Yeah, and I think I speak for both Val and myself, Darren, in saying that we both really love Simona's attitude, both on court and off court. Um, she's a joy to watch, but also... Um, like just the fiery side, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> Oh, geez. But also just like listening to her interviews as well. Um, like she's just, I don't know, she's just like, a, seems like a really warm character, just um, looking on from afar. Um, and something that I forgot about that Val showed me um, yesterday was um, a clip of, of um, uh, Simona and yourself on court uh, in Shenzhen. And um, there was some pretty strong language used there. I think the word, the word disgrace was, was uh, thrown around at that point. Um, and I guess that probably that for me says a lot about the relationship um, between a coach and a player. Not least that the player sort of can take that kind of strong language, but it also says to me that um, there's a, there's a really strong element of trust between um, the player and, and the coach. So can you sort of talk us through, um, I guess, the relationship from from that point of view? It seems like Simona can can really be receptive to, um, I guess, uh, a lot of um, different language and, and sort of different attitudes. Yeah, what you see is what you get with Simona and I often joke with her that one of her, her greatest strengths is her pure honesty and I think that's what you guys see when she's being interviewed and the way that she talks and handles the tough questions. She's always honest. One of her greatest weaknesses is her honesty. <laughs> so it can get into trouble a little bit as well but she also likes the message. She doesn't want you to sugarcoat it and that particular moment, there's a bit of a backstory to that as well and I wasn't necessarily talking about her being disgraced, it was the attitude. And we always talk about her attitude being sometimes a great thing but also holding her back in big moments. And in that particular moment, we'd been down that path 20 or 30 times before. We'd seen when she has an opportunity to close out a match and she doesn't take that opportunity, she doesn't park it and put it somewhere else. She holds on to it through the course of five, six, seven games and quickly a match can unravel. So what I was trying to do is to get her out of that position mentally, shock her out of it a little bit, tell her the absolute truth because she was carrying on in not a great way through those three games and she still had an opportunity to win that match. So to her credit, she was a bit shell-shocked for a couple of games, but to her credit, she nearly got herself back into that match. She actually had 30 love in the last game at 5-4 to get back to 5-all. That's something she hasn't done before because normally when I've seen her in that mood, 20 times out of 20, she loses that match. But we had a long conversation afterwards. She acknowledged that it was not great, her behaviour on the court through that period, and that she needed to get better, and she has gotten better. But she is Romanian at heart. You know, I'm not trying to extinguish <laughs> the, the fire that burns in her belly, and I want to see that emotion. I want to see sometimes the anger, that fierceness that comes out, that determination, that that attitude she has where she wants to be perfect on the court all the time, but you've got to direct it in the right way to give yourself the best chance of winning. And every now and then she doesn't, and she knows that. So we just try to get better through those situations. But she's a lot, lot better than she was four or five years ago when I saw her playing. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot more of the consistency of results now. And that's part of the reason why she was able to be the number one player for two years in a row is that you can't achieve that 
unless week in, week in, out, day in, day out, that you're giving the best account of yourself. And that's what the three great players on the men's side do, uh, Federer, Djokovic and Nadal. They are so tough to beat because they are incredibly professional and they hate to lose. And so every single time they step onto the court, they have this responsibility and feel that responsibility that I've got to give my best shot here because this is what the people are paying to see. Uh, this is how I do the best thing for my sport. And that's the competitive side that kicks in every single time for them. And Simone is very much like that as well. Yeah, 100% agree. And you talk, you mentioned she's Romanian at heart. How much pressure is actually on her? I reckon she'd be the biggest athlete that's ever come out of Romania. So how much pressure is on her from the Romanian public to, to succeed and continue to do well? Because I saw the footage after she won the French Open the first time, a whole stadium screaming her name in honour of her Grand Slam win. It, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it's tough to describe, really, because we're fortunate here in Australia is that we have a lot of sporting heroes and a lot of great athletes, both male and female. So the pressure is kind of spread around. But there it's not. It's all on her. And they've had some great athletes in the past. Nadia Komenich is is one that comes to mind. And, in fact, Simona and Nadia are great friends. Ilya Nastasi, of course, was one of the greatest ever, well, number one uh, ranked player. Um, one of the greatest tennis players to come out of Romania. Mm -hmm. So they've had, and they've had some wonderful football soccer players, but right at this present time, you're right, Simona is the biggest athlete in Romania. So every time that she does play, you feel this sense of pressure put on her to get onto the court and perform. But she's done a remarkable job to take it in a positive way. She has enormous support wherever she goes. The Romanians come out and support her no matter where she's playing in the world. She loves it. Uh, she gets better for it. And nothing makes her more happy than putting on, I hate to say these colours, the blue, red and gold, because obviously quarter playing pros <laughs> on the weekend. But um, the, the colours of Romania are incredibly important to her. And, and every time she has a chance to play Fed Cup and represent her country, uh, she's incredibly proud of that. Might be actually blue, red, and yellow over there, so there might be a difference between Romania and the Crows. <laughs> the shade of blue is a little bit different, so you can take that. Um, but um, just just quickly, um, what's the difference between the, the difference between the men's and the women's in coaching? Like obviously working with Andre and Leighton for such a long time, and there's different rules as well between co uh, the WTA and ATP in terms of coaching. What did you notice when you made the switch? Not much, to be honest. It, it's the women's game, and thanks to Billy and Chrissy Everett and Martina and Pam and, and all the previous generation of players that have come through and how professional they are and how hard they've worked for the WTA, uh, done an incredible job. And and the female players are basically, for the most part, playing for the same prizes as what the ATP Tour is playing for. So it's, they are incredibly professional the work they do on the court is very similar to the work the men do. The only difference I would say, obviously, we get a chance on the WTA to go onto the court as a coach once a set where we can coach throughout the course of a match, which is good. I would like to be able to do it more, but I, I think it's good to use the coaches in a fashion where we can hopefully make an influence in the outcome of a game. And I think that's really important for the sport moving forward because we need to see more of that. But I, I would say the only difference between the male game and the female game is the lack of big weapon that the females have don't have helps the male players. So, for instance, if uh, John Isner was to get up a set in a break, 
he would relax a little bit because his weapon of that serve, he would know that he could get to the finish line in that match with that serve. It's not Unless you're Serena Williams, it's not so much the case in the female game. You've got to continue to work for your points and execute your strategy and stick to it and try not to rush it and play the type of game that got you into a winning position in the first place. But the, most of the women don't have that huge weapon that can win three points. So that's where the emotions come into it a little more. You can panic a little more. The anxiety can come in a little more. You see the emotions come out of the female players a bit more than what you do in the men. All part of the game. Uh, it's just that they are trying to, to keep themselves on the right path uh, to get to the finish line as quickly as possible. And to me, that's really the only difference. And the more you can try to develop weapons in the female players that can win them the free points, whether that be dancing around a second serve and whacking a forehand as much as possible or, or working on the serve that you can slide it so you've got the one-two punch. Not so much winning the point with the first serve, but putting it in a position where you can thump that first backhand cross-court to get on top of the point. Those little set plays are huge in the women's game and, and if they can rely on those moments in the big times when they're trying to close out a match that's going to help them get to the finish line as quickly as possible. Just before we let you go, Darren, because you have been very generous with your time, this is a question that we uh, we love asking uh, our guests, uh, and you are a, a very well-travelled uh, individual. We, we enjoy asking people, what's the best place they've travelled uh, on tour, Rome. and what's the worst place they've travelled? Rome, easily the best place. I could live there in a flash, I, I think, for the, the people, the way they dress, the driving i don't know if you've ever driven a car in rome but it's just it's <laughs> you put your helmet on and, and hope for the best it's an amazing experience the food the restaurants the hotels uh, just architecture everything about the italian open and then we get to play in the foro italico which to me is the most beautiful stadium in the world uh, playing on the italian clay courts against the italian players that are the most expressive and most expressive fans and knowledgeable fans no question. If I could only go to one tournament in the world, it would be the Italian Open in Rome. Worst place? Played a Davis Cup match against Peru once in Lima. And this is way back, I think, in 1990 or, or 89. I think at 1989. And, my God, we couldn't wait to get out of the place. And <laughs> we, we had terrorists threatening to come down and kill the Australian team. We had armed... Gee gunmen on all parts of the stadium. Uh, we were playing against a crowd that were throwing things at us, swearing at us, spitting on us, doing all sorts of stuff. We actually got out of the tie with a 3-2 win. <laughs> we couldn't wait to get out of the place. <laughs> and as you would expect, I've never been back there. So I know Peru's a beautiful place and lots of people go and visit there, but for an athlete to go and play there, it was a nightmare. Wow, Jeez, it is... sounds, a lot like, uh, sounds a lot like when the Socceroos went over to Uruguay in 2005. Sounds <laughs> similar. Oh god, yeah. that is that is unbelievable, and yeah, another another nomination we've had for South America. So that was awesome, Darren. Thank you so much for for joining us on this podcast today. You are the best tennis mind, in my opinion, in the world, and and to have you on our podcast it, it has been unbelievable. So thank you so much for joining us, and uh, good luck to I must say, good luck to Port Adelaide for the twenty twenty season. Yeah, all the best, boys, and good luck to Essendon and Richmond as well. And looking forward to playing you guys later in the year. Cheers, boys. Darren Cahill there, Joel. Oh, my God. That was honestly one of the best chats that uh, that I've ever had in regards to tennis. And just his mind is is unbelievable. And, of course, he's on the Port Adelaide Football Club board. And his father was such a prominent figure 
um, for the Port Adelaide Magpies in the SANFL. So good luck to them for the rest of the season. But, um, oh, geez, he just has some such interesting things to say, doesn't he? Yeah, he does, and I mean, it's uh, it's pretty easy to see why uh, you know he's had um, he's had such high profile pr- uh, pupils in his coaching career, Andre Agassi, Leighton Hewitt, um, and of course uh, Simone Harlop. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you really can't help but marvel at at, um, at the relationship that um, that those two have. Um, you know, it seems, I guess, looking uh, looking from afar, um, there's you know, I guess, a, a mutual respect, not quite a friendship. I don't think you. Um, you know, you necessarily want to be too close uh, if you're a if you're a player and a coach. Um, you know, I think I, I don't think you necessarily want to be friends with them, but you need to be you know on a on a good level. As as Mark Safor said last week, you need to understand them, and, you know, emotionally and um, and all that. But you can really see that um, there's a good balance between that sort of camaraderie, but also you know they're um, you know they're competitive and they're serious when when they need to be and yep. um, both Darren and Simona uh, understand each other and they know how to get the best out of each other. Yep, and that's exactly what's happened. Halep um, became world number one under the tutelage of, uh, of Darren Cahill. So, um, and he'll always have that. He's guided three players to world number one now. And um, in my books, that's one of the greatest coaches um, of the modern, of the Grand Slam or Open era. So just what a wonderful wonderful custodian he is of the sport, not only in Australia, but globally with the work that he does with ESPN in the media as well. So Darren Cahill there, um, what, what an unbelievable chat. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just so stoked that we had him on the show. It's, um, it's been, it was such a pleasure. Um, but Joel, finally, we've got to, we've got to get to, to this man because we can't forget him. The pink haired, lovable, um, lovable Frenchman, Benoit Pair. It's our Benoit of the week time. And, um, Geez, what do you reckon of his hair at the moment? It's it's not great. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's fitting though. I think it's fitting. Yeah. I think that's a good word. Yeah, it is Benoit. I'm surprised he didn't get a Benoit of the week for that haircut. There must have been some, I can't remember when it was, but it must have been something good that um that uh, o- that overlooked him that week. But um, who is our Benoit? This is our tenth Benoit, Joel. So this is the yeah. tenth, our tenth show back in our reboot. So very very exciting. But um, who is it this week? Yeah, so Benoit number 10 is uh, Dominika Sibilkova. Um, of course, former Australian Open finalist and former world number four. She had a baby during the week uh, named Jakub, I think. So congratulations to Domi. Um, yeah. Very nice. good. Went through, a, went through a great... It was kind of... Childbirth is kind of like like watching one of Benoit's matches. Um, oh. <laughs> a lot more painful, but... Have you ever childbirth? No, no, I'm just, I'm just, hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. It's a hell of a lot more painful, but geez, the upside is so much more rewarding. So it's, it's very, very, I'm going on extremes here, absolute extremes, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's wonderful. She's gone through an absolute great amount of pain and I can't imagine what that pain would be like. And I don't ever want to imagine, thank God I'm a male. Um, so yeah, the, to the females of this world. Well done for giving birth to us. But, um, yeah, so, no, congratulations to Dominika Tsibulkova and um, and her husband um, uh, for a little, I think you did say Jakob, yes? Yeah. Yeah, Jacob I love that name. I don't know why. Jakob just comes across, comes across, comes out so nicely. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it from us today. We're waffling now. But, um, Joel, thank you very, very much for your efforts. No, no worries, Joel. Catch you next week. 
Catch you next week. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint One. You can follow Joel Frucci on Twitter at Joel Frucci and Instagram as well. Give him a follow. His his content's always always worthwhile looking at. And uh, Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, uh, Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast, Facebook where there. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, Wushka, wherever you get your podcasts from. I've been Val Febber. You can follow me if you like at vfebo ninety six. I'd probably follow Joel over me, but um, if you want to, you can. Um, that's all from <laughs> that's all from us. Um, we'll catch you next week for some more. More tennis chat hopefully a bit more news about the US Open and where that's headed plenty more still to come in 2020 we'll bring it all to you on Breakpoint Podcast